As runners, cyclists, and triathletes, you may be well familiar with various types of injuries, including bone injuries. For runners and triathletes, it's often the dreaded stress fracture. And for cyclists, it's falling off your bike and breaking a collarbone. But we often think about fractures. We don't often think about necessarily how nutrition is linked to our risk of bone fractures. So that's exactly what we're going to have a look at in today's episode. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance, be it complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each episode, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask. Sort of stuff that you're talking about out on your run or ride, in the coffee shop afterwards, or jumping online to find answers for. So we'll take that question, break it down, and invite a guest expert in our A episode and a guest athlete or coach in our B episode to add their unique perspective. Today, it's episode 56A, What's Nutrition Got to Do with Bone Fractures? With our special guest, researcher Luke Hilkins. Before we get to Luke, how are you this week, Steph? I'm good, Al. I'm good. I've um, escaped over to Adelaide for the Easter break. It was a, a quick trip, but a, a fun one. Good, good to see the family. I didn't get to see them for Christmas. What about you? Did you have a good Easter with the kids? Yeah, well, the weather was pretty miserable over here, so That's not great. a lot happened. And there was a big factory fire only about a kilometre oh. from here. So Easter Sunday, we had to stay indoors with all the oh. doors and windows shut because oh. of potential toxic fumes oh, shoot. so that wasn't so good but <laughs> the weather was pretty miserable to be fair we probably wouldn't have gone out and done a lot anyway so yeah 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 not the end of the world not the end of the world yuck so just a reminder if you have a question you'd like answered on the podcast you can find us on social media at the long munch on instagram facebook or twitter yep and we've got some more information coming i think probably in the next episode, I would say, about thelongmunch.com and what's happening over there. I think we'll finally get that kicked into gear in the next few weeks and start to have some communication out to people and get some input from people into some of the resources that they'll find helpful to have available up there as well. Yep. Cool. And this one, Al, as you've mentioned before, we have been wanting to talk about this particular question for a wee while. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's been over 12 months we've been trying to hunt down our guest for this particular episode. But Luke is a, Luke Hilkins is a lecturer and researcher at the Hahn University of Applied Sciences in the Netherlands. Uh, he did his master's degree at Maastricht University, also in the Netherlands, and people might know that name. It's um, probably one of the top research universities in terms of sport and exercise science and interactions between exercise and nutrition in the world. And Luke is currently completing his PhD in the area of exercise and nutrition interventions for bone health, and he's particularly focused in elite cyclists. And when I say elite cyclists, as in the Umbo Visma cyclist team, so sort of elite, elite mm-hmm. cyclists. And he'll tell us a little bit about that story, about why they're doing that research and, and what's happened so far in that PhD. But yeah, it was great to, to chat to Luke. I saw a presentation that he'd done. I didn't see it, but I saw a tweet about it at a conference in the UK at the end of last year. And as soon as I saw that, I said to Steph, right, we found our person Mm -hmm. to do the bone health topic because uh, the person we're trying to get on prior to that, uh, we 
we couldn't pin down. So I thought, oh, here's someone else who's you know really active in research in this area. And, and we had a great chat with Luke. I think he was really good at explaining uh, the various aspects of how nutrition impacts on bone health and how that relates to both stress fractures and traumatic fractures as well. And as runners, cyclists and triathletes, maybe some of the things that we can do or should do to try and minimise our risk of those things happening. Mm, yeah. Awesome. Let's get stuck into it. Luke Hilkins, welcome to The Long Munch. How are you going? I'm going very well. Thank you for having me. So you are a lecturer at the Hahn University of Applied Sciences in the Netherlands, and I believe you're sort of about halfway or so through your PhD there. How And the PhD, sorry, is around sort of bone health and nutrition factors in there. So I guess the first question is, how did you get involved in sort of looking at nutrition and bone health? Yeah, I guess it goes back like maybe already 10 years ago, I started my master's at Maastricht University. And actually that built the foundation for me for my interest in exercise physiology and sports nutrition. And also I met there some researchers and people who are working with still today. Um, yeah, then throughout the years I worked here and there and it's different stuff. And finally I ended up at the Han. And at the Han we do, um, yeah, I think it's really fun. We do research, but we also do, we teach the students and we do consultancy. So we work with, actually with elite athletes. So many of my colleagues are based at the uh, team NL. So they work with the highest level athletes. Uh, we teach students, that's physical, edu physical education students and sports and exercise students. And we do research. But uh, this, this research project on bone health that started actually a couple years ago, when we again worked with elite sports teams, in this case it was the, actually we have the best cycling team in the world in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. So we worked with them and, um, and the funny, the funny story is we, yeah, we use the DEXA scan. It's, it's, it's very much used for uh, measuring body composition in athletes. And actually we have a DEXA scanner in a mobile truck so we can move it around to the country. So that's, well, athletes love it because they don't have to come to Nijmegen, we come to them. Mm -hmm. um, and for the cycling team, we did this and we matched body composition. But while measuring and while analyzing the data, we saw, whoa, okay, bone density is low to very low values in this population. And then it actually started off, we uh, searched literature, okay, what's going on? Okay, it's actually known in cyclists that they have low bone mineral density, but there's not, not much data, also not much, much data in women or in young cyclists or in uh, former cyclists. And we discussed this with the uh, performance managers of the teams, with the coaches, with the sports physicians. And actually those discussions resulted in my PhD project that aims, um, yeah, that, 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 that's, that's looking into bone health in athletes, specifically elite cyclists, and what exercise and nutritional interventions can, um, yeah, uh, beneficial affect bone in this uh, population. Yeah. Awesome. And we had a chat to um, Professor Asker Jerkendrup mid last year, who obviously works with Team Jumbo Visma as well. And I guess that'd be a great team to study because if I'm right, they have a men's team, a women's team and a development team. Yep. Perfect. Those discussions 
I was talking about, we actually wrote this up in a viewpoint for Journal of Applied Physiology, and among others, Oscar is also on that as an author. So. Mm. Yeah, awesome. And do you have a particular background in sport yourself? Yeah, as almost every boy in the Netherlands, I started out as a soccer player. <laughs> Dennis Bergkamp is my main idol. I don't know if you know him in Australia. Yeah. But in my 20s, I stopped soccer also because of some injuries. And I actually started participating in more individual sports like running, cycling, resistance training. And also then my interest in nutrition to support my training uh, increased. Mm -hmm. uh, but I never participated at a really high level. So I train four or five times a week, but I'm not an elite athlete. <laughs> Too bad. <Yep. laughs> no, fair enough. All right, well, let's start off talking about bones. Obviously, that's our topic of today is, you know, that link between nutrition and bone health. And you've already identified, you know, when you did those DEXA scans of the cyclists, you saw straight away that their bone density was was really quite low. And I guess most people probably don't spend a lot of time thinking about their bones. Like you obviously can't see them. And a lot of people probably just assume that it's something that grows when we're children. And eventually we get to a stage where we stop growing and that's kind of it. Our bones are just finished growing, so to speak. But I guess the reality is that bones are constantly changing. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that works? Um. Yeah, I actually really understand why people uh, are not into bones like what you say. You don't really see them. And actually also me as a exercise physiologist or sports sports fanatic, I always was interested in muscle because muscle, you can see, it really it adapts to what you do. Um, but when I, when I got interested in bones, I really was fascinating about the function and the, of, of, of bone, how important it really is. So if you look at bone, we have almost about 200, 210 bones in our body uh, with many important functions and uh, like protecting our organs. But for athletes, a very important function is of course, they are part of the musculoskeletal system and together with tendon, bones, ligaments and muscle, it makes it possible for us to move. So that's a direct relationship with athletic performance. Uh, next to that bone is the uh, storage side of minerals. So about almost almost 100% of the calcium st uh, stores of the body is stored in the bone. So that's also a highly important function. And I think lastly, it's, it's also important for athletes is the function of bone as the production site of new blood cells. Mm. So I started to look at bone as not a more like a dead tissue, but really as an organ. This is just an organ that has very, very important functions in our body. Uh, it can also send signals to muscle, but that's not a different story. But bone is important for athletic performance. Um, then we look, when we're looking at bone, um, I always distinguish, distinguish two parts, the hard outer layer, the cortex or the cortical bone, and the more soft inner side of bone, that's the trabecular bone or the spongy bone. Um, and as you look at bone throughout our lifespan, it's, we see a rapid growth in bone mass in the childhood and adolescency. And around the year of 20 years old, you reach your peak bone mass. About 90% of your bone mass is achieved when you are 20. From that period onwards, 
it's all about bone maintenance. And don't think about it then that bone is dead. No, like you said, it's a living organ that's constantly turning over. Two important cells uh, uh, are involved in this process that are, that are the osteoclasts, who are responsible for breaking down bone, and the osteoblasts, who are responsible for building up bone. And this process of bone remodeling is constantly going on, like every day throughout the year. And it's highly important for removal of old bone or damaged bone and disposal of new. Uh, new bone uh, ensuring healthy bone tissue mm, yeah absolutely and i guess you know if anyone's had a bone fracture obviously it has to be a living tissue because it heals itself eventually and i guess you know we tend to think as you said you know people tend to get interested and think about muscle because you can see changes in muscle over a fairly short period of time when you do exercise any kind of training you can see changes in the muscle but you know, obviously bone responds to exercise as well, but I guess one, it's less visible because it's not the actual size that's changing. And two, I guess the change is more, or it changes more slowly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's immediately the challenge of studying bone tissue because it has been restricted for a very long time to DEXA, where we measure, measure bone mineral density. And the most studies who use DEXA um, take about six, minimum of six months to actually detect a change in bone mass or bone mineral density. Mm. That's why we have um, uh, yeah, looked into the bone turnover markers, the blood markers. How do they respond to nutrition and exercise? And you see actually an immediate response. Um, but still there are many un unanswered questions what this, this response means. And it's also quite, you see quite some variation after different exercise bouts in, dip, in, in between different people. Um, so that's still a, still a challenge, but it gives them some more insight and more uh, information about the bone metabolic response to exercise and nutrition. And another interesting, um, yeah, relative new method is also an, an imaging method uh, that's called um, Extreme CT. It's a CT scan. Um, it is high resolution peripheral quantitative computed tomography so and in the we say all always extreme ct scan mm -hmm. um, and actually now we are working with a hospital here in the netherlands to also uh, use this scanner which is can scan the bone with an extremely high resolution and it actually can separate the cortical part of the bone and the trabecular part of the bone. And so it actually, to make it easy, it can look inside your bone and can see the architecture, the microarchitecture of that bone. How sensitive is that? Is, is this? Um, there are some studies who see differences um, after already eight weeks of training. Mm, wow. Maybe this new imaging technique can help us yeah, to do the research uh, a little bit faster. Mm, yeah. And obviously with the DEXA scan, what you're measuring is bone density and bone mineral density. So it's looking at the calcium, as you said, and then some of the other minerals that are in the bone and how much is in a certain area of bone and how that changes over time. As you said, that's quite a slow process. And while we tend to use bone density as, I guess, a bit of a marker of bone strength, 
I guess, is only one aspect of the strength of a bone because it's not just about how many minerals are in the bone, it's about how they're structured and so on. Yeah, true. So next, next, I think in literature you can always find a number that bo aerial bone mineral density is about 60%, explains about 60% of the variance in, in uh, bone strength. But it's also bone geometry, how is the, actually the, the angles of the bone, how is it built, and bone uh, microarchitecture. So mm. how thick are they, how uh, close are they together, the trabecular. Mm. Yeah, you, you need more techniques to really understand the, the strength of the bone. Yeah. Okay. And you mentioned before those bone turnover markers, and it's obviously something that we can measure in a quite a short period of time. So you can have some sort of intervention. I'm sure we'll talk about some of your research shortly. And then you can mix that with exercise or maybe not, depending on what you're studying. And then you can see changes in these bone turnover markers quite quickly, you know, within an hour or two. So what are these basically measuring the activity of those osteoblasts and osteoclasts you were talking about in terms of how much bone is being broken down and how much is being sort of added on? Is that the idea? Yeah, the, the bone turnover markers, um, yeah, they are the, uh, the, the, you can measure them in the, in blood, so in plasma or serum, and they reflect the, indeed, the activity of osteoblast and the activity of osteoclast, so how many bone is built up and how many bone is broken down. Um, recently, um, the, International guidelines suggest, yeah, it's more in depth. P1 and P is a marker of uh, uh, collagen buildup, so bone formation, and CTX1 is the most appropriate marker of collagen breakdown of bone bone resorption. Um, still, we have also this discussion with um, at the Han, but also at Maastricht University, where Luke van Loon is located, and he's actually my promoter for my PhD, and they do the the direct measurements with stable isotope methodology, right? With the biopsies. Um, doing bone biopsies is possible, but it's uh, it can be painful. And I, we don't think we get um, ethical uh, <laughs> improvement here in the Netherlands. But there have been some studies done from Scandinavia, and they actually showed that uh, bone uh, collagen synthesis is increased after um, the ingestion intravenously uh, of, uh, of, of nutrients. Um, but there's very, um, and those bone turnover markers have been validated against those biopsy techniques. Mm -hmm. But in the clinic, when we work with um, clinicians, they use those bone turnover markers uh, to uh, give an idea about the effectiveness of the medication to um, battle osteoporosis. Yeah. And actually, it's very good validated in, in that context. Mm -hmm. We use it more like an acute marker, like we want to do with the muscle protein synthesis. Mm. Still, I think that is, that is quite different than the effect of medication, which is also really strong effect uh, on the long term. And we want, to, we want to know what's happening in the hours and days following exercise and nutrition. Um, but yeah. We use them as a marker of bone uh, 
uh, formation and a marker of bone resorption. Yep. yep. And are we fairly confident from what you're saying with the, the bone biopsy studies? And I can't imagine that, you know, drilling into a bit of bone and taking a sample wouldn't be fun. Um, we fairly confident then that those bone turnover markers are going to be reasonably predictive of what's going to happen to bone density over a period of time, like after a few months, if, if we're doing a certain thing that tends to result in a favourable change in the bone density markers, if we do that repeatedly, we're likely to get a favourable change in terms of bone density eventually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and when, we, when you look at CT, CTX, the marker of bone resorption, so bone breakdown, that, that actually is really sensitive to nutritional intake. It really responds really good to food intake. Uh, we see it also in our own studies. When you give people a drink with nutrients, you see bone resorption is going down in the hours following that that uh, that meal. Um, so, and that is really logic because okay, food intake is important for bone health. So food intake protects bone uh, by inhibiting bone resorption. <clears throat> but the P1 and P marker, the bone formation marker, we don't actually see it respond to food intake in our studies. And that's actually quite in line with uh, most of the literature. Um, so there's also some difference between markers, some differences between peoples. Uh, um, for the cyclist, it's different when you measure them in, in season or you measure them off season when they are have higher body fat percentage, they're well fed. So actually some external fact factors complicate the interpretation of those bone, bone turnover. Yeah, okay, now that makes sense. Okay, and so when people think about nutrition and bones, I guess the thing that traditionally they might have thought about would be things like calcium and vitamin D. Now obviously these are important broadly in terms of our bone health across our life, but is there anything specific to these that, might be different with athletes that we need to consider like i know there's been a little bit of research looking at whether you know losing a bit of calcium in your sweat is a problem in terms of bone um, or whether specifically having calcium at the time of exercise is going to be protective or something like that is there anything that we can see in calcium or vitamin d with athletes that we might think is a little bit different or we can do that might be helpful for bone health compared to just the general population who aren't doing much exercise a good question i um for the for athletes, the nutritional recommendations for bone health are actually not that different from the general population guidelines. Mm. Calcium and vitamin D have quite some importance for bone health. Um, but when you look at calcium intake in athletes, actually in the Netherlands, it's, it's, it's quite high. I don't know what your dairy intake is in, uh, in Australia, but we consume quite, quite a lot of, of milk products. So the cyclists here, they don't have any deficiency in calcium. Vitamin D, on the other hand, is a well-known um, nutrient which can be deficient in the general population, especially during the winter months when we can't synthesize vitamin D from sunlight uh, with our skin. But when we actually measure serum values, values of vitamin D in, our, in the cyclist, about 95% has sufficient to very good uh, vitamin D uh, blood levels. Mm -hmm. Why? Most of them already use a vitamin D supplement. Mm -hmm. It's widely known among cyclists, but also among the dietitians 
they say subscribe a vitamin D supplement, uh, especially during the winter months. But most cyclists they take it uh, year year round. Mm. Um, but if you don't take a vitamin D supplement, then it can be a a target nutrient to to take to to maybe do a blood uh, blood test when you're not sure if you have sufficient vitamin D values or just take a low dose vitamin D supplement. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, back to your last question about calcium intake around exercise. Mm-hmm. If there's that is a specific nutritional strategy for for athletes, um, yet indeed there have been some studies done around uh, calcium intake uh, before or during exercise. And what the hypothesis is that when you exercise, you sweat, and while sweating, you lose uh, minerals among uh, them calcium. Um, this can actually be as high as 150 milligrams per hour. But this, this is actually the, I think the, the upper value, what I have found in the literature. Um, probably when you, uh, when you sweat a lot, when you uh, cycle in very hot or humid conditions, of course, then can it be very high. And they um, uh, started with giving calcium before or during a cycling exercise bout to battle the um, yeah the hypothesis is that because of exercise not because of the sweating your serum calcium uh, homeostasis gets disturbed and that's actually very very tightly co- uh, uh, regulated in our body our calcium levels in the blood why calcium has very important functions um, such as uh, nerve transmission uh, uh, muscle contraction but also the contraction of our heart vacillation and vasoconstriction. So that's why it's really, really tightly regulated. When calcium levels become under that range, so it becomes too low, the body will immediately respond by hormones get released um, that uh, result in bone demineralization so that calcium becomes freely free from the bone and yeah, restores the normal calci- of the calcium values in your blood. And that is the hype that can be a hypothesis if this is occurs with every training session mm. this can result in bone mineral density loss so bone mass loss over time um and yes giving calcium before or ju- during exercise uh, prevents that from happening the exact mechanism is if it is because of the sweating is still debatable Whatever the real cause is, is exercise results in, hom- in calcium uh, homeostasis uh, disturbance, and calcium intake can prevent that from happening. That that they're all acute studies. There has been one long term long term study investigating the effect of calcium supplementation before every exercise session. I think it was in cyclists. Um, and they saw no differences between a placebo conditions over the months when measuring bone mineral density with DEXA. But there was, there was only one study and it was published in a strange journal, I would say. So I would, I would actually be eager to uh, do that study again. Mm. An elite cyclist who actually sweat a lot or do exercise a lot. I don't think a rec- recreational cyclist who goes three times per week for an hour has to cons- has to be concerned about calcium intake around exercise. Mm. So it's probably more if you're training sort of 20 hours a week or more sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. And then, so yeah, 
in terms of other nutrients, what other nutrients might have a role in terms of our bone health other than calcium and vitamin D? Um, yeah, there's, there's quite a list, like vitamin K, uh, phosphorus, um, magnesium. But I would say they are, of course, they are essential nutrients. Uh, but again, they are termed micronutrients, so you don't need them a lot. And I think most of the people get them sufficiently. Okay, you have to check that with a dietitian or yourself with a, with a with Switch software. Or most of the, the athletes take a low dose vitamin D uh, pill. So most of them have enough. I would focus more on the macronutrients, so which you need a lot. Uh, protein is an important one. We can discuss this later. Um, but I think the most important, important one is your, your total energy intake. Mm the uh, low energy availability phenomena, which received quite some attention in the literature. And I think that is the real important stuff for protecting your bone health. Mm. Yep. And so this is where if you're not eating enough calories, basically relative to your training load, your body's essentially having to get the additional energy from somewhere, but there's a whole bunch of adaptations that occur, including changes in some of the hormones, which have kind of a side effect to affect the bones in terms of you know that demineralization or losing some of that bone density as a result yeah um, in the early 2000s with the laboratory studies the acute studies for over a couple of days when you people go below a certain amount of calories per uh, fat-free mass they yeah bone metabolism is disturbed so again bone resorption increases and bone formation decreases mm. yeah and this if you i think i think small or um, a couple days of low energy availability or one day is normal i guess in an athlete because the person trains a lot uh, medium or long-term periods of low energy availability for weeks or months then it starts to become a problem mm. and that's what you see yeah the more the cross-sectional stuff also, which we did in uh, the elite or the professional cyclist, we actually concluded in our study that low energy availability was um, a predictor of bone health in cyclists. Yep. Yep. Okay. And I was going to ask you about that. Obviously, as you said, you know, cyclists are a particularly high risk group. Is it because they tend to have a lot of low energy availability, or are there other factors going on there as well? Um, I think low energy availability is a major factor. Mm. Two reasons. One, it can be um, yeah, subconsciousness. So yeah, they they train a lot and they, they're just not capable of um, eating enough to uh, correct for that energy exercise uh, expenditure. Or they do it consciously. So they actually want to decrease weight mm. well-known phenomena in cyclists because the well-known weight to power ratio is actually beneficial for performance um, so there are two things which are related to the low energy availability state um, and i think that periodization should be also in nutritional counseling a factor so during the off season let the body rest let your body mass and body fat uh, increase to recover from the 
intense period of uh, in-season cycling where you have to be like very sharp we say in the, in the Netherlands mm-hmm. and uh, yeah but of course other factors also play a major role in cycling and it is the sport of cycling per se so cycling does not have really strong benefits for your bones of course you have some muscle contractions and pulling on your bones so um, it will stimulate bone but only in the beginning after that bones also get used to the to the uh, to the stimulus which is very low and during the rest of your career it will not stimulate uh, uh, bone or bone uh, bone mass increases and the rest of the time um, especially in the past it was like um, you cycle and when you come home you just lay down just lay in bed don't do anything yep. I think it was like uh, Joop Soetermelk, the famous Dutch cyclist in the 80s, I guess, who he won the Tour. And he said also, every time you, did, uh, you win the Tour in bed. That was his <laughs> statement. You have to, we have to rest a lot. Yep. Yeah, but if you lay down and when you're on a, on a bicycle, you actually like you, it's more or less you're like in, you're in space, mm. you know, there's no gravity. So no pressure on the bones. And that is together with maybe low energy vividity part, a major uh, risk factor of, of, of low bone mineral density. So if you did, I think if you do everything right, also nutrition, um, good body weight, but if you're a professional cyclist, your bone health will be compromised, I guess, because it's just a uh, yeah, part of the sport. You just have to ensure to, to mitigate it, to mitigate the effects of cycling. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we'll talk a bit about that later because I know that's been part of your PhD is looking at how you can do that with cyclists. The other thing I was going to ask here is you mentioned the low energy availability and we've sort of discussed that a little bit in previous podcasts as well. But I know there's been a bit of talk in bone health about whether it's low energy availability or low carbohydrate availability because there has been some studies looking at the same energy intake but different amounts you know very low carbohydrate kind of ketogenic diet versus a higher carbohydrate diet and maybe differences in bone turnover markers there as well do you feel that it's mainly like the carbohydrate is driving the response that we see in energy availability or do you think they're two separate factors going on here that's that's a great question and i think still a topic of debate now in in our community community um there are some studies suggest, suggesting that uh, it's the low carbohydrate availability that has separate effects, separate from low energy availability on body functions. Um, there was a really nice study published in Medicine, Science, and Sports and Exercise from Louise, Louise Burke's group, mm. and they, I think, it was a couple of days of uh, low carbohydrate availability, and they looked at iron. I think it was iron metabolism. Mm. And they indeed saw the the separate effect of low carbohydrate carbohydrate availability. So I think there is something there. That, um, and also back in the days when we were talking about overtraining, there was also a role of carbohydrate intake. So the carbohydrates are important for maybe immune function or other function in your body. Regarding to bone, um, yeah, there was the study by, I think it was uh, Haikura on the short-term ketogenic diet on bone turnover markers. And they saw a, a, de- of a, yeah, a, 
not a beneficial effect of uh, ketogenic diet on bone turnover, so on bone health. Um, but that was also a ketogenic diet, so how much is it? 50 grams of carbohydrates mm. per day. Yeah. So yeah, that's 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 extremely low. And um, so I think as a proof of principle, there is there is an effect of carbohydrates on uh, your bone turnover markers. Um, but in the just general athletes, the cyclists who just have a normal eating pattern, um, who eat throughout the day and have sufficient carbohydrate intake, I don't think, yeah, because 50 grams is really, really mm. low. And of course, we see in the cyclists that they are, many of them are below the guidelines what they need to ingest before, during, or after exercise regarding carbohydrates, but it's still much, much more than 50 grams per day. So I don't, I don't, I don't know if it's. Yeah, then it, I think then it will be sufficient carbohydrates, yeah. and it will be the is the total energy intake for these cyclists. That's the major yeah. factor. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So before we get into, I guess, nutrition and stress fractures in particular. For those who aren't familiar, can you describe the difference between a stress fracture and the type of fracture that might occur when you fall and break your arm or collarbone? Um, I would say the major difference is a stress fracture is a, a chronic overuse injury. Uh, so it's, it, it builds up over time. Um, because of most of the time, because of repetitive, repetitive movements with uh, overload, like in marching or running, that typical sports who are uh, prone to uh, bone stress injuries, and a stress of, that's a stress fracture. But a uh, bone fracture is just the immediate uh, fracture of a bone, which also is like the stress fracture or the bone stress injury is a very very small. Quack, I would say in bone, while a bone fracture is the yeah total or near total yeah crack of bone, total fracture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's immediate. You just you just bump into something or you have a fall or whatever. Immediate stress fracture over time. Yeah, and I think you sort of mentioned it there, but. Who or what sort of sports are most at risk of stress fractures? Um, yeah, of course. Obviously not the cyclists, which uh, we are studying. They are more and more, more prone to the acute traumatic fractures. But um, now they are being advised after our research to start running, you know, to give a st stimulation to their bone health. But actually now we are also warning them for, okay, it's good to do some running, but be careful. You have to go very slowly because that's that's an increased risk of stress fractures because of the repetitive mm -hmm. characteristic of that of that running, and especially in in individuals who have low bone mineral density or who have low bone health, they are more prone to uh, stress fractures. So that's why cyclists have to be very careful when starting running, but. I would say it's it's runners who are very um, very prone to stress fractures, um, but also yeah you, you see it a lot in in walking or marching in the in the military in the environment. 
I actually been into the military service here in the Netherlands and uh, during the base camp course, right? You have to march a lot with your with your rucksack. And there are many, many um, rec recruits who uh, just have to stop the course because of a stress fracture. Yeah, this, that's that's a really common uh, common phenomenon in in the military. So they start have to start walking, uh, different shoes, mm. uh, a high overload because of the, the backpack, and that's when you see the uh, occurrence of uh, stress fractures. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, I guess most runners and triathletes are very aware of the risk of bone stress fractures and the impact it can have on their training and and racing. But traditionally, I guess nutrition wasn't really associated with stress fractures. Do we know how much nutrition contributes to stress fracture risk compared to other factors? Um, I think nutrition is an important factor, but um, I believe the most important factor in bone health is, is still. Um, exercise mm -hmm. and loading mm -hmm. and for stress fractures the appropriate loading of the bone so that it's the programming or the design of the total training program to prevent the uh, the bone stress fracture but of course nutrition has to facilitate that when an exercise stimulus is given that there are enough nutrients to build new bone to ensure uh, proper bone health and I think the similar uh, nutrients and nutritional factors we discussed before, like the calcium, the vitamin D, phosphorus, vitamin K, they all have to be uh, on point, but also the low energy availability phenomena and the protein intake. So actually prevent your, that you aren't eating enough. That's also what you see in runners and triathletes also. Yeah, they, it's a weight sensitive sport. Weight can actually be beneficial for your performance, um, and actually low body weight is a risk factor for uh, bone stress fractures, bone fractures. Yeah. Yep, yep. So having low body weight being a risk factor for stress fractures, is that because of not getting in enough energy? Yeah, I think this indeed it's, it's, it's correlated, mm. it's all intertwined. You're not, you're not getting enough energy, will decrease your body weight, Body weight is very much correlated to bone mineral density, mm. um, but yeah, it's related. But was it the mm. energy intake first that made you that you didn't ingest enough nutrients that decrease your bone mineral density? Um, but I think they're all factors that athletes and coaches have to take into account. Mm. It's not like one factor. If we measure this or uh, monitor this, then it, then we can prevent those fractures. No, it will be nutrition will be the exercise program, it will be body weight, it will be um, uh, like uh, things like menstrual cycle, is everything on point or are there dis disturbances, which all can give you an idea about the actual health of the athlete and they all are more or less also related to, to bone. Mm. Yeah. So I think that, that will give you a quite good idea of um, of of what is the risk of a, a, a stress fracture. Mm -hmm. Protein, there are now some massive systematic reviews indicating that uh, protein is actually beneficial for your bone health. Uh, then it's always the question, okay, how much? 
what protein and when, about timing maybe, um, how much it is actually shown that more than the RDA, so more than the 0.8 grams per kilogram body mass is beneficial for bone, bone health. So probably around 1.2, but when we look at the Netherlands at what do athletes consume, then it's about 1.5 grams of protein per day, per, per kilogram body mass, right? So they probably they, they ingest enough protein, albeit here in the Netherlands. Then there was a recent um, uh, study who looked at uh, the source of protein, and they actually showed that the total protein intake and animal protein intake were associated with beneficial effects on bone mineral density, while plant-based protein were not associated with a beneficial effect on, uh, on bone mineral density. Of course, cross-sectional work, but this may be hint towards the um, composition of a plant-based diet. And then you can look again at this, the, the bone-important nutrients. Are they all um, enough available in a plant-based diet? You have to probably you have to um, uh, check if you're getting enough vitamins and minerals when you are eating a plant-based uh, diet. So that's even, I would say, when you're just an omnivore, probably you get enough. But if you are an elite athlete who is uh, thin or is eager to get thin, mm. you probably won't get enough. So you have to check it. Mm. And when you're on a plant-based diet. There is also a risk you are not getting enough, so you have to check it with a dietitian. Yeah. And what's the actual mechanism? Like, why is protein important for bone health and stress fractures? Um, yeah, we talked about the beginning about the composition of bone, mm. um, but uh, about 70% of the bone is minimal, mm. uh, hydroxyapatite, so the that's mainly mm. calcium. And about... 30% is, um, yeah, it's called the extracellular matrix, which is, consists mainly of type 1 collagen and also some uh, proteoglycans, some other cells, and some other factors, but mainly type 1 collagen. And collagen is protein. Yeah, it's the main building block of connective tissue in our body. Um, and then you can discuss, okay, what type of protein would be actually most beneficial to uh, promote bone health? And that's also something we are looking in right now here at, at the Han University and also at Maastricht University. What is collagen, collagen doing at our connective tissue? And we looked at this for the connective tissue around muscle. And uh, we're looking, we looked at this for the uh, collagen content in bone. And we're now starting to do look into tendon also. But regarding bone, you would be would uh, yeah the hypothesis is okay. This collagen is the major protein in in the bone. Okay, so also so you also have to give dietary collagen to maximize collagen synthesis in bone. Yeah, and and, and thank you. You're very familiar with the. I would say maybe already famous study by Shaw and colleagues by Keith Bars group, uh, 2017 about the uh, collagen vitamin rich collagen synthesis with jumping exercise. Yep. 
yeah, and, and that actually accelerated the research on the effect of collagen. Mm, yep, definitely. And we've had Greg on the podcast, not about that topic, but about supplements more broadly. Yeah. So, yeah, so your PhD has looked at some strategies that might reduce the risk of fractures in athletes. Can you tell us about those strategies you've studied and what you've found so far? Um, yeah, I, we looked specifically in, in cyclists, so professional cyclists. And we first uh, wanted to uh, uh, get an idea about what is the status of bone health in those cyclists and what are the major risk factors. And the major risk factors were uh, bone-specific physical activity and much more the bone-specific physical activity you did in the past. So, and that um, is an agreement with the um, increase in bone mass during your puberty phase. That's the, I would say, the golden phase of bone mass accretion. And indeed, the cyclist who did more bone-specific physical activity during that time period had a higher bone mineral density now during their career in comparison to the cyclist who didn't do that. So that's that's people, sorry, that um, did other sports sort of growing up, maybe running or triathlon or something. Exactly. So, yeah, bone specific, I would say, is more like soccer or volleyball or basketball or tennis where you are jumping, running, cutting. Um, uh, yeah, so that's, that's, that's a... Risk factor. The other risk factor was uh, body mass uh, or BMI, and that's in agreement with all the studies in osteoporosis or anorexia nervosa. So, body mass or BMI is just a risk factor for low bone mass. The lower your BMI or body mass, the lower your bone mineral density in general. Um, then we uh, had low energy availability. So that was a risk factor for low bone mineral density. Um, yeah, and also they were not real predictors in our model, but they were correlated in some way. It was uh, like also vitamin D. So vitamin D was also a factor that contribute, contributed to bone health in cyclists. So that are uh, the major risk factors. So that also gives an immediate indication, okay, what are the, what should interventions uh, target mm. so yeah and we uh, we used mainly uh, exercise as a stimulus to increase bone mineral density so we did a study um, both in the lab but also in the field with the actual elite cyclist who did exercise that was jumping activity to get some impact on the bone that's a well-known intervention um, and we used collagen so we thought that collagen supplementation would further benefit uh, bone health. Yep. And what, what did you find? Yeah. So uh, in the cyclists, we did a longitudinal study with one group doing exercise, jumping, almost daily, mm -hmm. but only for five minutes. So that's the benefit of doing jumping. You only have to do that for a couple of minutes, and then bone cells become... Uh, less sensitive to the stimulus and that's enough you have to repeat that after a couple hours or every other day or every day um, 
and that was a good strategy because cyclists, as you know, are not really that willing to spend hours in the gym to do some resistance training. They don't have time for it. They don't want it. Or they are, are afraid of negative effects on their cycling performance or body weight. Hmm. Yeah, that's just a, I think, good, well-designed resistance training is actually beneficial for cycling performance, but it's another story. But we did the jumping. So the intervention group did jumping and they ingested a collagen drink with the jumping. Yeah, and in the control group, they did just their regular training. You know, no, no placebo, no nothing. Yeah. Um, what did we found? We did this during the off season, and the cyclists who did the intervention uh, had beneficial effects on the hip region. So we measured the hip, the lumbar spine, and the total body, but in um, accordance with the rule of specificity, we did find a beneficial effect on hip bone health. So also for mobile neck on the bone mineral content content of the hip but it was actually more a protective effect it didn't it increased but not a lot but actually the control group decreased mm. that's what you expect from other studies mm. during each, each season they have a small in decrease in bone mineral density and the jumping was protective it was an 18-week intervention so it was quite short but we have to, st to stick to the off-season period of elite cycling. They want, didn't want to do it longer. But still, in those 18 weeks, a small amount of jumping protects your bones. So if you just would do this all year long, maybe three times a week, five minutes a day, some rope skipping or whatever, it can protect your bones. Um, yeah, then is the next question I think would be, okay, is it the exercise or is it the collagen? Yeah, we just we combined it to it to just we wanted to do a, a maximum effect. Um, we did a study uh, in the lab, short term, with just regular male uh, participants, um, and there we did jumping with collagen versus jumping with placebo. So we could uh, actually know if it was the collagen or the uh, the jumping, and we did we did this on the acute and short term so hours and days following exercise and nutrition and they jumped once or twice daily with collagen or placebo um, yeah and we actually didn't find any beneficial effect of collagen on bone turnover markers so the bone formation marker p1mp did not increase more with collagen than with placebo it did increase with jumping so jumping works, uh, but it didn't, collagen didn't, didn't do anything extras. And here we did see, so Alan, you talked about, does it align with the long-term adaptations? Yes, we did see an increase in P1 and P after 24 hours, so bone formation. And it stayed elevated also at 48, 27 hours when the intervention was, uh, uh, was going on. So mm. yeah, so that would result in increases in bone mineral density over time. Yep. And do you think um, that there wasn't sort of much of a, a difference with the collagen because they were already eating enough total protein already? Yeah, for sure. For sure. That, that's, a, that's a very good comment and a major uh, comment on every protein supplementation study. 
most of them definitely males definitely in western countries mm. they're eating enough so extra doesn't have any beneficial effect however there is some discussion about okay the collagen is all about the glycine and the proline amino acids they're also non-essential amino acids so the body can produce them by themselves while ingesting enough mm. high quality di- uh, dietary protein but um, some say you won't get enough of them of glycine and proline you won't ingest them enough and giving more will stimulate collagen synthesis and now we are discussing okay we did we don't find anything in bone actually not acutely um, is it because bone consists of 30 percent of collagen while tendon is about maybe 80 percent of mm. collagen mm. So maybe it does something in the tendon, but we don't see anything happen for now in bone or in muscle connective tissue or in muscle tissue itself. Yeah. Yeah. And um, for the cyclists, they don't tend to like get stress fractures because they don't have the, I guess, yeah, the impact forces of running that do, but they do tend to break a lot of collarbones in, in crashes. Um, is this just an inevitable part of falling off your bike or can nutrition, do you think, play a role in the risk of this type of fracture? This was actually the first comment we received from uh, the performance coach from Jumbo when we have the first discussions and he says, yeah, nice and well the bones, but when they crash with 70k kilometers per hour downhill, they will, they, they will break anything. They will break anyway, their bones, if they are strong or not. Mm. Uh, because we were focusing, oh, yeah, stronger bones, they will prevent fractures, of course, and that, yeah, <laughs> better cyclists. Um, um, yes, fractures are inherent to cycling. That's the other, they, they are the main cause of all the fractures, the fracture, hyper, fracture prevalence. But we did find in our cross-sectional study a relationship between fracture incidents during their career and their bone mineral density. Meaning cyclists with low bone mineral density had more traumatic fractures during their cycling career. Mm. Yeah, I think this was really, we have to be cautious cautious about this effect because of this relationship. But still, for us, it was the first hint and also a good argument uh, towards these coaches and the cyclists from hey we actually see that cyclists with low bone density have also more fractures so yeah when you fall you have an increased risk also the, the ones with uh, high bone mineral density but probably with low bone mineral density cyclists have a higher fracture risk yeah and, and fractures is of course you can't train so it has also a indirect relationship with performance and we all know the stories about when we talk to the sports physicians from the from the from the teams. They say, "Yeah, we all have the stories about the the cyclist who who falls and who is of who is of, like, like seems to be of glass who breaks anything or, or when he stands he falls. Okay, he breaks something, and the cyclist who miraculously have a massive crash and they just stand up and they pedal further. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think bone density is a factor." 
in day risk, of course, muscle mass, how you fall, etc. Mm. Also, factors about bone mineral density is a is a factor, of course. Mm. Yeah, and I guess even if it wasn't, there would still be a good reason to try and support the bone density of cyclists because I guess you got to think about the rest of their life and you know living for the next 30, 40, 50 years after their cycling career and not developing osteoporosis in their forties or fifties. Yeah, one of the, sure, and that's a when they cyclists come in in our lab. Some of them are uh, sensitive to this argument, and others think, "Yeah, I don't care. I just want to win the Tour de France." You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a, a, we we still uh, bring this message towards the cyclists and towards the teams because it's not uh, it's not really that well known. They don't think about it, and also the, the coaches. They don't think oh, this is actually a risk factor of osteoporosis because after my career, it's very, very hard to increase bone mineral density again, to increase bone mass. It's not, it's almost not possible. You have to do very much about it. So this your, this is your teens and your twenties. Then you have to work on your your bone mass. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we are going to now go into the bonus round where we can learn a little bit more about you and your mountain biking career. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll hand it over to, to Al. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So our first question for you, Luke, if you weren't working in sports science and nutrition, what do you think you would be doing instead? Yeah. I told you I was in the military, right? Mm. So I always had some, some interest in like police and military. So all, all, when I was young, yeah. and still now also this this increasing um, uh, interest of the military and police force themselves into exercise and nutrition science. So actually, we are working also with mm. police and military. So that's pretty cool. But yeah. Maybe I had a career in the, just in the, in in the police force or in the in the military. Uh, yeah. yeah, cool. And is there a sport that you've always wanted to try but you've never had the chance? In my bachelor's, I did the physical education physical education teacher course. So in that course, we did many sports. So I did quite of quite a lot of them. But actually, it's becoming very popular in the Netherlands. Is padel? You know it. But that was some kind of mix between tennis and squash. Oh, yes, I, I have, have seen, seen that. that. Yeah. But it's, it's very, I think, very famous in, 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 in Spain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now it's also becoming really, really popular in the Netherlands. But I still didn't have a chance to do it. So probably I would, I would go for Padel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have seen that here too. And I think it is yeah. becoming more popular worldwide. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Your favorite post-exercise food or drink? I won't have to think long about that because I'm a lifelong, yeah, we call it quark. It's cottage cheese, I guess. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, yes. It's a, it's a high-protein, low-fat product, and it's not expensive, and it's every everyone who's doing sports or who's an athlete eats it. <laughs> I, just, I just love it. A little bit of blueberries, a little bit of blueberries, and then... Uh, and then you're done. Yep. <laughs> Perfect. Is there a, a particular sporting event that you're looking forward to the most in 2023? 
I would say I'm already enjoying them, the, the spring classics. Mm. So, yeah, I, I think they, they are the most fun. Yeah. One of the most fun sports events, and definitely for cycling. So, yeah. I think yeah. we have the Ronde van Vlaanderen coming up in two weeks. Yes. And final question Do you have a favorite piece of advice or motto that you live by? Yeah, maybe I, I would say uh, in sports and exercise science, but also in the fitness industry, I always say to people and my friends in general, I would say the motto is the secret is there is no secret. You know, everyone is looking for the magic bullet and mm-hmm. the shortcuts and. The longer you are in, into the exercise and nutritional community, you think yeah, it's actually not that uh, complicated. Oh, yeah, it can be complicated because we talked about it in an hour, but <laughs> actually you just eat enough and you just go for some, sometimes go hard and sometimes go easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's it. I think for 90% of 95% of the world population is that a, that's a good advice. And the other 5% are elite athletes and they, they need some more. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. All right, well, I think that's a perfect place to finish on. So thank you so much for your time, Luke. It's been great to get an insight into some of the work that you've done. And obviously, you know, from a listener perspective, I think everyone will be really interested to hear about the effect that nutrition has on bone because it's something that I think some people are really aware of and some people I find still have no idea that there's a link between nutrition and bone health and, and, you know, risk of fractures and things like that. So, yeah, thanks so much for your time. Thank you both. Uh, thank you for the chat and thank you for, for having me. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. Thank you very much, Luke. Um, wealth of info there and told a really nice story. So um, I'm going to hand it over to the one and only Alan for, for the summary of this one. Sure. So, yeah, our question was, what does nutrition have to do with bone fractures? So I guess the first thing we have to do is talk a little bit about bone and then nutrition and how they're linked. So bone really is a dynamic tissue. You know, you think about things like muscle that's constantly changing. Um, Bone does that as well, although the change is obviously less visible and also they happen much more slowly. So muscle, for example, the proteins within your muscle turnover in about 120 days, whereas in bone, that same process takes about 10 years, just to give you an example of how much slower that turnover is. Now, bone has a protein component, which is primarily collagen. It's the type of protein. And it has a mineral component, which is mostly calcium, but there's phosphorus and magnesium and some other minerals as well. Now, we really need to optimize both of those to maximize the strength of our bones and to reduce the risk of fractures because protein or the collagen component provides toughness to the bone, and that is that it gives it the ability to absorb shock and give slightly in response to to being loaded for running and things like that. But the mineral content of the bone, which impregnates the protein structure, is important for the stiffness or rigidity of bone. So we don't want a really rigid bone that's not tough because it would just shatter and be very brittle, but we don't want a very tough bone that doesn't have rigidity because it would just bend and flex, and we don't want that either. So we need this sort of unique combination that we have within bone. Now, the, the mineral content of bone really acts as a reservoir for storage of minerals that are then able to be released into the blood to maintain a stable level in the blood. And especially calcium is the one that this does the most for. And that's crucial for a lot of different functions in the body. We need a very stable blood calcium concentration for normal heart function, for example. So we don't want to go mucking around with that. And so when we have an excess of these minerals, like we've just eaten a meal that contains calcium and that goes into the blood, we store those minerals away into our bone mineral 
the opposite will happen, for example, overnight when we're asleep and we don't have any calcium coming in or if we have a low calcium diet, we're going to start to take some of those minerals out of the bone to top up the blood calcium concentration. Now, theoretically, we talked about this with Luke, is you know this could happen in part due to sweat losses of calcium, but calcium sweat losses are actually very, very small. And this is probably only, and it may not even be, but may only be relevant to athletes doing very, very high sort of training volumes. Um, most, but not necessarily all athletes, probably get enough calcium in the diet anyway, just because they're eating a lot of food. But if you're restricting, obviously, dairy products, that may not always be the case. But for most athletes, it's probably not likely to be the main reason for weakened bones and increased risk of fractures in terms of calcium. The other nutrient we tend to think about is vitamin D, and vitamin D is involved in regulating the absorption of calcium from food, and it also has a role in controlling how mineral is added or removed from the bone to maintain a consistent concentration of calcium in the blood. So low vitamin D can be an issue for low bone density. But again, the majority of runners, cyclists and triathletes spend a lot of time outdoors because of their sport. Not always the case. Obviously, you've got uh, some athletes who do a lot of training indoors because of you know, very cold winters and things like that. So, you know, if you're in doubt of vitamin D, you know, you can obviously get that tested. And that's something that we might do a future episode around specifically is vitamin D because it has other roles as well. But again, similar to calcium, vitamin D for the majority of athletes is probably not going to be the main factor that's maybe impacting on their risk of fractures. Now, because the minerals in bone are bound to this collagen protein structure, a lack of that structural protein component in bone will also reduce our bone density, which is what we measure on a DEXA scan. Now, we know that bone density peaks sort of in your late 20s to early 30s and then generally declines over the rest of our life. And so if we're past that age already, we can't really, in most cases, increase our bone density. All we can hope to do is reduce the speed at which it declines over that period of time. Now, like muscle, the protein component of bone requires a stimulus to make it adapt. You know, we go out and do training and our muscles adapt to that. The same happens with bone. So we want to replace old bone collagen tissue with new collagen. And we need, obviously, a stimulus to do that. And we need building blocks to actually do that building from. So the stimulus in this case is the force on the bone. So in its most simplest form, it's just standing up weight you know just gravity pushing down on our skeleton will give some stimulus which is why astronauts uh, lose bone density because they lack that stimulus or cyclists who spend their whole time sitting on a bike and then lying down because they don't want to be standing up and walking around to conserve energy may also lack this kind of basic just weight and, and gravity loading on the skeleton but then we have loading force so resistance type exercise weight training and that sort of thing but also impact force so things like running and jumping which is why as a general rule runners and triathletes will have slightly better bone density than pure cyclists now the building blocks involved here are obviously nutrients and that's the protein or the amino acids that we get from food just like it is for muscle and most athletes do get plenty of protein in their diet so it's it's not likely to be the limiting factor for the majority of athletes. There might be exceptions to that, but again, it's probably not the main factor. Now, we know that weakened bones can result in an increased risk of fractures, and that can either be a stress fracture, which is that sort of overuse type injury in which the bone becomes weakened over time from repeated impact forces and a lack of what it needs to, to do that remodeling. And this is what you see commonly in runners and triathletes, but because of the lack of impact, you don't generally see stress fractures in cyclists. It's pretty rare. The other type of fracture is obviously a traumatic fracture, which is that one-off force that breaks the bone. So, you know, 
cyclists will be very aware of this in terms of falling off a bike and breaking a collarbone, that kind of thing. Now, the main issues that are identified for endurance athletes, if it's not calcium, it's not vitamin D, it's not protein in most cases, what actually is it that increases someone's risk of fractures from a nutrition point of view? Well, a couple of things. One would be a lack of stimulus to the bone itself, so prolonged sitting, a lack of running and jumping type exercise. Um, this is a major issue, particularly in pure cyclists, and we know that they clearly have low bone density, and Luke talked about the observations that he's made with the, the Yumba Visma guys and girls. Um, we also know that undernutrition is a, a major factor, so that's more likely to be around energy availability, so just lack of calories. Now, why does calories have to do with it if it's not calcium, vitamin D, and protein? Well, it's because when you have a lack of energy, so low energy availability, that impacts on your reproductive hormones, and these hormones have other secondary roles in regulating bone turnover, and, and more so than muscle. So this is one of the main reasons that hormone replacement therapy, for example, is used postmenopausal in women is to actually preserve bone density once the menstrual cycle is gone and you don't have those reproductive hormones having that protective effect on the bone. So we know that low energy availability can affect all different types of endurance athletes and we can refer people back to episode 24A, can I underfill my training if you want more information about that. Specifically, Luke's research with Yumbo Visma has shown that cyclists who've had a history of more traumatic fractures also have lower bone density than their cycling colleagues. Again, we don't know whether that's a, a causation effect or it's just a, an interesting correlation or association between those two factors, but certainly it seems to be observed there. And other research has shown very clearly that low energy availability and the signs of this, so for example, no menstrual cycle in females or low testosterone in males is an independent risk factor for stress fractures in runners. Taking a positive, what can we do about any of this? Well, the first thing is particularly for cyclists who lack that kind of stimulus on the bone is doing some impact exercise. And that's where Luke's research has gone in his PhD and he's found that just five minutes a day of jumping or plyometric type exercise is enough to prevent a reduction in bone density compared to people not doing that type of activity. So again, you're not necessarily gonna increase your bone density, but you're gonna stop it falling to the same extent. Resistance training, so getting in the gym and lifting weights may also be helpful if you can incorporate that into your training program. So there might be certain athletes that do that already as part of their training program. For recreational athletes that are just you know doing their exercise for enjoyment, then adding some resistance training in alongside your running, cycling, triathlon, whatever it is, might be a beneficial thing for your long-term health and your, your bone health. Ensuring adequate calcium Vitamin D, getting that tested, and adequate protein are certainly important, but ultimately energy availability is likely to be the most important factor for the majority of endurance athletes. And finally, Luke investigated collagen supplementation specifically because it has the particular amino acids that will then make collagen within our bones. But this didn't seem to add a benefit beyond just the jumping exercise itself that he was also investigating. And that's probably because in these athletes they were getting adequate protein in their diet anyway. So going for special you know, protein supplements or specific amino acids isn't probably gonna add much value in that case. It's just getting the energy availability right and having that stimulus on the bone. And now the last one to add, I guess, there is whether there's an issue with carbohydrate availability impacting on bone as well. Yeah. And I guess like Luke said, like in the cyclists he works with, you know, they've got ample carbohydrate availability anyway. 
So he didn't think it seemed to be an issue unless it was severely low, like I guess your ketogenic type of, of diets. Yeah, yeah. And it's very hard to tease out because carbohydrate makes up such a large part of our total calories anyway. It's very hard to tease out whether it's an independent effect of carbohydrate or energy. There is a couple of research studies that have sort of started to look at that. And that's where, as you said, you know, a ketogenic diet that has enough calories, but is very low in carbs, may be a risk factor. But again, for the majority of athletes in endurance sports, it's not likely to be relevant necessarily because they're less likely to be eating that way anyway. Mm-hmm. Yep. And now I know you've been nearly wetting your pants for this next um, <laughs> guest <laughs> that we've got coming up. So obviously, um, same question, what's nutrition got to do with bone fractures? Um, so who were we lucky enough to get? Yeah, so when we first talked about doing this topic like a year, year and a half ago, I said to you, I've got the perfect athlete for this. Mm-hmm. And this is, I've never met this person before, but I'd read their story online probably five, six, seven years ago now, uh, and just an incredible story. As you said, the same question, what's nutrition got to do with bone fractures? Uh, And our guest is former UK uh, middle distance and cross-country runner Bobby Clay. So some people might be familiar with Bobby's story. As I said, she um, sort of told that story about six or seven years ago now in terms of how nutrition led her down a path in terms of poor bone health. So an incredible story. I think having listened back to the the interview, doing the editing on it last week, people are going to really learn a lot from it. It's an incredible story. It has to be heard to be believed really mm. um, in terms yeah. of what Bobby's been through and, and how that, that link between nutrition and bone health is, is so strong for her. But I think if you have heard her story before, it's, it'll be an interesting to see where she's at now because that story, as I said, was told sort of six or seven years ago. But it's interesting to hear like what's happened in the, the time since then as well. So, yeah, really enjoyed this chat with Bobby. She was incredible, incredible interview and really looking forward to sharing that with people in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah, yeah, me too. So just a, a reminder, if you do have a question that you'd like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at The Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. And thank you to those people who have left ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We really appreciate it. I don't know if we've got any recent ones, Al. No, please leave some. So there's a prompt. Um, So also remember that there's, you know, now more than 55 previous questions that we've already answered. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome. Uh, you may like to check out the back catalogue to see if there's something there that will be helpful to you. Most podcast apps only show you the last few episodes, but if you click back, you'll find the rest of them there, which go back all the way to November 2020. And if you do want to be notified every time a new episode is available, you can hit subscribe on the podcast app you're listening to this on. And if your friends are asking about a particular nutrition concern or issue for their training or racing, and you've heard it on the podcast before, you might like to handball them to us and hopefully we can ask any questions that they have. Otherwise, as always, we will love and leave you and look forward to talking to our next guest. We'll do. See you then. 